got? We're in Ephesians 1. We're in verse 18. We finished up 17 last week. So just appreciate people coming over this morning to spend time with us and pray and worship our Lord and dig into the Word of God. And we'll keep moving forward with Ephesians. Um, So let's pray together. Father God, we just thank you for who you are and we thank you for the Word that you have shared with us to help us become more intimate with you. Father, I thank you for those people who've joined together this morning to study your word together, to fellowship with one another, to break bread. And we just thank you for your son, Jesus, who through his propitiation, we are able to be with you in paradise. So we thank you for who you are. We thank you for this time. And we thank you for your son. All these things we ask for in the name of our precious and holy Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So Ephesians 1, 18. So I'm going to start out at verse 15 because 15 is where we started last week. And because this is Paul's prayer of thanksgiving, it kind of makes sense to start at the beginning of the prayer and then just read. And as we do this over the next couple of weeks, we'll start at verse 15 and just remind ourselves. So it's good, I think, to write this prayer in your heart because it's a good, it's a good prayer. It's Paul's prayer. Um, for the Ephesians, but you see it's theologically rich and it makes sense. And it's Paul really pouring his heart into uh, the people of Ephesus. So I, I just love the way that he's worded all of this. And then we'll get into what it has uh, for us specifically. And I, as I read this over the last week, I was reminded of that song. And if I mean, I wasn't raised as a believer necessarily, but um when Carol and I were saved, there was this uh, Christian song, Open the Eyes of My Heart, Lord, that was hugely popular. And my kids, like, this song would be on in the car, like, to school, way back from school, to soccer. We were, I mean, this song got sung, like, over and over and over. It got sung in church. I still really loved the song. It didn't ever wear me out. It's a very simple but beautiful song that's about God giving us his wisdom about God opening the eyes in our heart. And you're going to see why that's uh, important in this. So starting in Ephesians 1 and verse 15, Paul says this. He says, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and the revelation in the knowledge of him. Now, moving on to verse 18, he says, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to his great might? Um, so I'm going to stop there, um, and I, as I read this, as we move on with our study, I thought, like, what does it really mean to open the hearts, open the eyes of your heart? And I mean, it just, or enlighten the eyes of your heart. It seems pretty simple at face value, like enlighten the eyes of my heart, but it's very allegorical, right? Because, well, one, there's no eyeballs on your heart, so that doesn't really mean anything. Your heart can't see anything. And what does the heart have to do with it? We use, in Christian language, in Christian vernacular, we use this word heart a lot. Um, And you actually shared something on social media about your heart this week in a song that you were talking about. That lady sings that Christian song. And you're talking about it, how it makes your heart feel. And it's like, what does that mean in your heart? Like, 
it's, it's just kind of something we throw out there. Like I feel it in my heart. Well, our heart is a muscle that pumps blood. So there's actually no feeling in it whatsoever. So how does that allegory, what does it really mean to speak that way? And this isn't something new. I mean, this is something Paul 2000 years ago was talking to the Ephesians about the heart and the way the heart is. So what is that kind of, how does that mean, uh, play out for us, this symbolism? So um, in Psalm 119.18, as we look at the, our eyes, so we'll start with eyes, okay? So knowing the heart doesn't have eyes, what does it mean to open your eyes? What else does the Bible say about this? In Psalm 119, in verse 18, uh, the psalmist here says, Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. So if Solomon writes Psalm 119, Solomon was never recorded as being blind. So what does it mean to open his eyes? He's asking God to give him some sort of specific, very deliberate wisdom, some very deliberate knowledge. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. So he's asking God that he can see things that only God sees or know things that only God knows. Another example would be um, in Acts in Acts 26, verse 18. It says, to open their eyes so they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and place among those who are sanctified in faith or by faith in me. So what we're hearing here is that when your eyes are opened and you can see the path you're on, that it leads you from walking down the dark path to walking down the light path. So your eyes allow you to see the difference between darkness and light, in which we all know the theme of light in the Bible. Christ is the light. We are the light of the church. This idea that um, light is good and dark is bad, and that darkness cannot overcome light, that light always wins over darkness, is this uh, idea when we open our eyes, we're able to see that light, and we step away from that darkness. There's another one in 2 Kings, um, in, in chapter 6, and I, I really dig this one. If you've ever read this story, um, go home and read this at some point this week, because this is a really cool story, but, and it's about Elisha. So the prophet Elisha, if you've ever read about him, very cool story, Elijah and Elisha, right? So he was, um, this is what Elisha did. He prayed and said, O Lord, please open the eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire around Elisha. So you probably, there's that old movie in the eighties, chariots of fire. It's usually popular. Um, what happens here with Elisha is he's revealing to this young man that there is an army around them, chariots of fire. There's this giant army, battles about to take place, but he can't see it in the temporal. Well, Elisha, the prophet who was very, very blessed as a prophet, was asking was God reveal to him that there's spiritual warfare going on all around you. And it's real. It's not make-believe. It'd be like putting on a pair of glasses and seeing stuff around you you wouldn't be able to typically see and that's the idea of him opening your eyes is this this idea that you get to see things that you typically would not be able to see and i know in my christian walk this is something that i've had to work on is that i see things differently and it's how i respond to those things that i see differently that's important um but then paul is following this theme 
in that it transcends the entire biblical text and uses I as an example of being able to see reality of God. So it's true enlightenment he's talking about. Um, and even an unbeliever can see things. I mean, that's just, if you have sight, you can see. And they can see creation with their eyes. I've talked about this with friends who are unbelievers. It's like, how do you know God is real? I'm like, look outside. You can see creation. We know that it's made by God. There's no other explanation for the wondrous things of the universe, especially the things that exist right here on earth, except God. So believers can see it. So can unbelievers. So then what's the difference? So they can see that creation. They can see miracles. And we've got evidence of this throughout the Bible. I think there are evidences of this in modern times. Do miracles still happen? There's a big debate about that. The continuationist and the cessationist debate. I tend to believe that miracles still do happen. They still do exist. They haven't happened around me. I've never seen something crazy, but I've had friends who've seen things that are unbelievable, right? They're hard to get your head around. God has done things in people's lives that I'm not even going to try to explain. I give it to him and say, you know, it's, it's his to do. He can do whatever he wants within his own creation. So unbelievers can see these things and still deny God. So I can look at creation and see God. I can look at a miracle and see God. And somebody who's a non-believer can look at creation and look at a miracle and still go, eh, it's got to be able to be explained somehow. Um, um, and our eyes can help our cognitive understanding of the world, right? And the things that are spiritual, but they do not, without the power of God, allow our hearts really to grasp the wondrous things of the Lord. And that's what Paul's praying for them is, I want your eyes to be able to see the things that nobody else's eyes see, to really be able to take in that God is a very specific part of our creative process and, and is in essential for our faith. But why the heart? So we've moved from the eyes, we go into the next organ. So we go to the heart. And what do we know about the heart from the perspective of the Bible? So I went to Strong's Concordance. This is interesting. It tells us that this word, and you guys might not know this. I don't know if you've studied this at all. But the word in Greek for heart is cardia, right? So we get another word from that in the English language, cardiac, right? And it's used over 800 times in the Bible, 800 times. And out of those 800 times, you know how many times it actually refers to the organ in your chest? None. <laughs> it never, like it never wants, we got Luke writing Luke and writing Acts and possibly participating in other things. And Luke's a doctor and he uses the word heart regularly, but he never as a doctor says the word cardia referring to the organ in the chest. It always refers to the mind, to the character, to the inner self, to will, to intention, or to the center or capacity of moral preference. So where your heart lies, right? In the Old Testament, the word is lab. And it's used in phrases like this, like Psalm 51.10, where the psalmist asks God, <coughs> excuse me, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit with me. So clean your heart. Give me the intentions to do things right. Ezekiel 36 is an interesting one. I love this one. It's used regularly in, in biblical exposition. Uh, in verse 26 in Ezekiel 36, it says, And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit, and I will put within in, a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. So God's work removes your stone heart and gives you a flesh heart. Again, think about it. 
when you became saved, nobody actually cut your chest open, pulled your flesh heart in, and put a stone, right? So it's allegory. It's this idea that God is going to change your intent. He's going to change the way you think. He's going to change your perspective. He's going to change the way you feel. He's going to change the way your faith plays out in your life. He's going to change the way you respond to people. He's going to change the way you look at your wife, even though your wife doesn't look the way she looked when you married her. Does that make sense? Like with your eyes, you see your wife differently than you saw your wife when you married her take that in for a second that's pretty deep like i saw my wife as a as a certain type of person but now that i am faithful to god i see her now in a completely different light right there's a bigger responsibility to us in that um here's another one in jeremiah 17 9 this is a really important one god reveals something to us here it says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I'll give you a couple more examples just because I think they're important. It says in Matthew 15, when Christ is explaining to his disciples that there's no unclean food that defiles them. If you're a believer, you don't have to follow the law. You don't have to not eat bacon, right? So he's going into this and it's not what goes into your mouth, but it's what comes out of it. And in Matthew 15, he says, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. So, you know, when you're blessing people, you're blessing them from God. When you're shouting people down and treating them horribly and speaking poorly of people, it's not from God. It's, it, it, so what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this defiles the person for out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile them. This is a really important text. He's accentuating that what comes out of your heart typically is not goodness. Matthew says in chapter 22, and he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and your soul and your mind. And then Luke, Dr. Luke says, for where your treasure is, there will be your heart also. So I want to talk about this. So there's this, debate over whether feeling something is true in your heart feeling something in your heart is true and what does the bible say about it and uh i I wanted to talk about this for a second because i think it's important i had this kind of debate with a pastor a while back and he was talking about i feel it in my heart that what i'm saying is true and i was like no no jesus was clear in matthew that what proceeds from the heart is is bad Jeremiah was saying that our heart, everything from it proceeds from evil. So what does that mean for the believer that in Ezekiel says, I've removed your heart of stone, I put in a heart of flesh, supposedly our heart is now good. Well, I think it lends to two things. One, it's a process. He's given us a new heart, but we've got to learn how to respond as believers because we still have all the cognitive stuff going on. We're still learners. He's built us to be learners. He's built us to be sanctified, which is a process. He's built us for justification, which is a process. So we have to learn to do things right. We have to read the Bible and learn what God has for us. We have to continue to grow in relationships and learn what our friends and our wives and children and husbands have for us and how we can better serve and love them. So there's the process part of it. But I think what happens is when we say, I know it in my heart, is we need to know this. What proceeds from our heart definitely has something to do with what we put into ourselves. Not just God taking out this heart of stone and putting in the heart of flesh, but 
if you're not reading and studying in the word of God and not understanding it on a daily basis, then when you respond to somebody during the week, whether it be you're dealing with clients in your work life or dealing with students or dealing with people out on the road or whatever that might be, is, is what is proceeding out of our mouth something that we fed ourselves earlier that week so that we know what's coming in and what's going back out is good, right? If we just constantly think, oh, I'm saved, so if I believe this and my heart is true, you are deceiving yourself. Jeremiah is clear. Your heart is not good. And this is that burden of being a human still and being on this side of salvation, on this side of eternity, is that we live in sin. Paul carries around the old man. We still do sinful things. We still think things about our spouse that we probably shouldn't think, right? We have those moments where you're like, ooh, today's the day. Like, I, yeah, you could just bounce and I'd be so totally cool with it. You know, you, we, this is how we live our lives. Those things come from sin. They come from your, you know, air quotes, heart. So we need to be very careful when we say, I know it in my heart. This is probably the better thing to do. Read, pray, consult, and then say, I feel as though my heart has told me after good consultation with the word of God <laughs> that this is what God has for me, right? So it's very difficult to say that my heart feels a certain way. There are actually religious faiths that depend on this greatly, right? When you look at the Mormon faith, one of the tenets of their faith is this. One of the tenets of their faith is that I read the Book of Mormon and then pray about it and I get what's called a burning in my bosom or a feeling in my heart that it's true. Well, I can tell you, it just makes easy spiritual sense to me that if I were a demon, demonic angel or spirit force, that if you prayed for something to be true, guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to tell you it's true all day and all night. I'll keep telling you all day and all night. And so when you minister to people like that and you say, how do you know that what you're reading is true? They're like, I know it in my heart. Well, here's the funny thing about that. How, does your, how do you know your heart's telling you the truth? Jeremiah is clear. Jesus is clear. What proceeds from the heart is just not good. So we consult with God. That's how we know this. And so it's really important to do that. So that's kind of a side note to that, but very important to talk about. So Paul's going to continue with this prayer. Now that we've gone over the eyes and the heart, and he continues with the prayer in three really specific ways. Okay, We're enlightened to the hope of his calling. So he says this as we go on, um, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened so that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you that are, um, I lost my place here. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? So three parts to this prayer, we are enlightened to hope of his calling. So Romans fifteen thirteen says, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. So the word hope can be counted as trust or confidence. And this is really important because this is like, this is what we build our um, defense of our faith on, right? In 1 Peter 3.15, and I love this verse because Peter is like clear. Remember, Peter's the tough guy apostle. Peter's the guy who's willing to draw his sword like for his brothers. Peter's the guy who's going to, he's going to lay it out to you honestly. He's not going to cut corners. He's giving you the word. He says, 
but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. So he's like, be prepared to answer people. People are going to ask you, why do you believe? People are going to ask you, where you go to church? People are going to ask you, how do you know that's true? People are going to ask you, how is your marriage? How is that working? How's your relationship with your kids? Why do you believe in all that stuff? Why do you go to church? Why do you gather with people and pray? Why do you think those things? And this is the thing, as good believers, we should be able to say, this is why. Like, no question. It's never like, um, and this is the one I dislike about the South. I go to church. Yeah, everybody goes to church. We're in the South. It's the Bible Belt. Like, people go to church on Sunday morning. That's what they do. But there's a big difference between knowing that hope that lies within you and making a defense for it, and like, well, I go to church. That's how, how do you know you're a believer? Because I go to church. No, all kinds of people go to church. They go to good churches. They go to bad churches. They go to okay churches. It doesn't make them believers, and it doesn't make them saved. It just doesn't. And we need to know that, knowing that that hope lies with us. So why are we confident? Why do we believe? This is how we know this. We become good theologians. Being a theologian is not a professional stance. Theology is just the study of God. Being a theologian is just being a believer. When we're believers, we want to know who God is, right? So have a solid confession. Know why you believe is true. Then after your confession, a personal testimony. But always in that order. This is an interesting thing, and this happened to me when I was a young believer, is we started out in a church culture that was kind of the remnant of the hippie hippie church culture in California, which was fine. And we loved it and we grew there and we made great friends. And a lot, it was a big, huge church and we, we thoroughly enjoyed it. But one of the big things they leaned on was your confession. Like we want you to write, or, or your, your, um, your testimony. We want you to write your testimony. We want you to be able to speak your testimony. It brings a personal aspect to it. Like people want to know why you're saved. Well, here's the thing. Does it matter? Does it really matter? Like, we're talking about Jesus. We're talking about the guy who created the heavens and the earth. We're talking about the guy who died for our sin. We're talking about the guy who got nailed to the cross and then they put in a grave and three days later pulled himself. The only guy in the history of humankind that apparently was powerful enough to roll the stone aside that weighed between 1,500 and 3,000 pounds and walk out of the grave. And we want to think that our testimony is more important than his testimony, than his story. So this is the order that I always try to encourage people to put things in is like when people are like, why do you believe what you believe? Don't sit them down and tell you, well, you know, I once was this person, but now I'm found like that's happened to all kinds of people who don't believe. Look at Alcoholics Anonymous. Awesome organization, faith based, but not everybody goes as faithful. You're going to see huge changes in people's lives, not based on faith. They have testimonies too. What's the difference? The difference is Jesus. So start with Jesus. Why do you believe what you believe? Well, I believe that God created the heavens and the earth in seven days. I believe that God set up a plan for us after mankind fell, that we would be redeemed back to him. And I believe that Jesus came to suffer and die for our sins. And he took my sin with him when he went to the cross and God poured out his wrath on him. They put him in a grave. Three days later, he rose from the dead fulfillment of the scriptures he walked amongst his people revealed himself to over 300 and then on the 40th day he ascended up into heaven and he's sitting at the right hand of the father i believe all of that because the bible tells me and i believe the bible is consistent it's a historical document and i think it was written in 66 books over thousands of years by many authors who were true 
It wasn't written as a book. It's written as a codex. It's written as a bunch of stories all put together that we consider to be canon. And all of it is true down to the last word. That's why I believe what I believe. And people are like, okay, it's about Jesus. And now they know. So then what comes next? Your testimony. This is why it's personal to me. This is why my wife and I have been married for 22 years without divorce or, frankly, murder. But this is why we know this. Now it's personal. Now it's a testimony. But look, it always starts with Jesus. The testimony never begins with, I once was an alcoholic and now I'm not. Because there's a bunch of people who have your story. Because if I were a non-believer who was an inquisitive person, and you were like, dude, I, I, I quit doing drugs and I quit drinking. That's how I know God is real. Be like... Yeah, I did that too. I don't believe. So now what's the difference? The difference is Jesus. And we need to recognize that, I think, when we talk to people. So why are we confident that we are called to be his children? And why are you know, we're called to redemption? This is really important part. The second part of Paul's prayer here is enlightened to the riches of glory and his inheritance in the saints. So saints is us. We're the believers, right? So in this verse... We see that we, the saints, are God's inheritance. So this is kind of funny. If we go back a couple of weeks, Paul talks about our inheritance as being God. So there's two parts to this, right? It's pretty amazing. God sees us as his inheritance, which is kind of weird. God doesn't need an inheritance, but it's because of his work that he gets us. It's because of his work that we get him. God gets all the glory. We get God. That's the important thing. We don't have to do anything except believe, submit to him. He does all the work and we get him. We get him at the end. This is an, a thing that I kind of switched my thought process on a couple of years ago. And I always, the, the word Jesus needs to be used more because people use God as a catch-all. Like a lot of people believe in like God, little g God. We believe in Jesus as God. That's a really important thing. Jesus is God. But we also have God the Father. Remember this. The goal is not to be with Jesus. Jesus came to be the propitiation. Our reward, our inheritance, is to be with God the Father. What's the difference? Remember that we cannot exist within arm's reach of the glory of God because of our fallen state. Remember when he went to Moses and Moses said, reveal yourself to me. God had to shield Moses from his glory. He surely would have died. He can't see him. We could see Jesus. Jesus is our way to him. He's the gate, right? He's the one who brings us to the Father. That is our inheritance, that we get to be with the Father. That is pretty awesome. And we set that majesty aside, I think, sometimes. Inheritance in the biblical sense is always reserved for the firstborn. Right? So unless God changes the plans, he did this with Abraham. Remember Isaac and Ishmael? Ishmael was born first out of his concubine, and then he had Isaac. Or Jacob over Esau, who were Isaac's sons. Unless God has changed the story somehow, the firstborn is this idea in Jewish culture that the firstborn inherits what was the father's. So the father has owned a big flock. He has a home. It's full of people and he's got slaves and concubines and he's got this big home this is the whole jewish culture is like son when i pass on all of my land is yours all of this stuff is yours this is this idea of inheritance but jesus is the one who deserves the inheritance um jesus is the firstborn over all creation from colossians 
we get to participate and join with him in that inheritance which he purchased. Which is interesting because it's like, you know, it's like having an outlier, just person, friend of yours, and being like, hey, I'm going to pay for all that with my life. All you got to do is say okay, and you can have it too. It all belongs to me. It's my inheritance. It's his inheritance that he gets to spend eternity with the Father. But we get to join in it, right? And the third part of that prayer is that we're enlightened to the surpassing greatness of his power towards all who believe. This is verse 19. So we're going to get ready to close up. And this is what, how we are going to close. And uh, it's this. This is the power that through the opening of the eyes of the heart, when a wretched sinner is saved, we get to see that it is God who has the power over death. The power to resurrect Jesus Christ from the grave also has the power to save us from certain death and the power that surpasses greatness. This surpassing of greatness that Paul talks about here is this word hyperbolo or like hyperbole, right? It's excessive, transcendent, or eminent power. This is where we understand that this power is so great that no one else can attain it except for God. And that power can overcome your greatest sin. Listen to this. If you haven't heard anything this morning that we talked about in Ephesians, I want you guys to go home with this. This is the part I want you guys to go home with this week and think about. And if you reread Ephesians this week, if you consider this, if you dwell on it, if you pray about it, I want you to hear this statement because I'm, I'm, I want to sum this up for you about this idea of God's power and about opening the eyes of your heart. <coughs> Excuse me. This power of God's can overcome your greatest sin. That means anything that you've done wrong, anything that's gone on in your life, anything that you do bad on a daily basis or weekly basis, God has the power to overcome it, period. He can overcome your greatest sin. He can overcome my greatest sin. He can overcome our pain. He can overcome our suffering. He can overcome our loss. He can overcome things that you've done in your past that you're not proud of. I've got plenty of those things. God washes them away. It doesn't mean you're going to forget them. It doesn't mean they're going to go away. It doesn't mean that all of those relationships are going to be healed. It doesn't mean that your former relationships, that you're the one who screwed them up so bad, are ever going to come back around. It doesn't mean that. What it means is he fixes it because he redeems you to himself and he makes you a new person, that he gives you a new heart. And here's the thing is it can bring us peace and hope and love and assurance. And that assurance is what Peter tells us to be prepared to tell people about. Why do you believe what you believe? I have assurance in Christ. He came, he died for me. And then I get to be with him in eternity. And my kids who I'm going to raise in him get to be with him in eternity. We hope, we trust, and we rely on him because it's he and he alone who has the power to heal and save. And when we realize this, only then when we realize this, will the eyes of our heart have been truly opened. And that's the hope that we have.